Welcome to the Simply Financial Podcast. This is Christopher Calandra, your host. This is episode number 50 of season number four. My guest on today's show is Vinny Fisher. He's an entrepreneur, businessman, author, and marketer. He is a best-selling author. He has over 20 years of experience, including growing multiple eight-figure companies. Most recently, uh, he is focused on helping e-commerce, tech, and digital business owners improve their financial fluency. And of course, I love that. Uh, financial education is so important. And that's some of what we'll talk about today. So he operates uh, an accounting firm that acts as a profit center, the back office, I think, operations for e-commerce, tech, and digital businesses. At least that's my understanding. So hopefully, uh, Vinny, I did you justice. Was that an all right introduction? Well, Chris, thank you for having me today. And I consider that an excellent introduction. I bet my wife couldn't done as good a job. So I think you did real good there. Wow. I don't know if that's more of a commentary on me or your wife, but. Uh, I, I, I'm convinced that my wife and kids sometimes are like, because I'm truly an entrepreneur. So I've done so many different things in the span of my 20 career, 20 year career that I think I always laugh. Like, I wonder what my kids think I'm up to. And so, and same with my wife. And so uh, that was actually a compliment to, to you as well as to, to them not being too worried about that part of my life. That's awesome. So uh, let's kind of just jump in. One of the things that really attracted me was this term that you had on your website and it was growing beyond your shadow. Can you kick things off? Because again, that, that really caught my attention. Tell me about that. Yeah, you know, I really, I'll tell you, that is probably the heartbeat of almost everything that I do. And, you know, later on, so for people who want, my team always loves to put together a gift package. And so I'm going to reference that thing because I'm giving it away to free to everybody. And as you mentioned early in the show, uh, in my introduction, I'm an author. Uh, and so we want to give away a gift at fullyaccountable.com forward slash simply financial. And in there, you will get access to the stuff I'm talking about. So sit back and listen a little bit. And then it's yours. And I triple dog dare you to read a little bit. But we wrote a book called The CEO's Mindset. And in there is a journey about me growing business and one of the things is that most people don't realize of the 28 million businesses in America, almost 23 million of them are like solopreneur in nature. They're uh, people who really kind of have their own thing. They might have a digital laundry or personal assistant, but for the most part, it's them. And there's about 5 million businesses that have actively engaged team members, which is what we call our employees. And so one of the things I, I realized as a professional, as a lawyer in my law practice, is that the, at the core of most good service companies, which are eight out of 10 companies in America, 82% of companies are service companies, are these amazing wow. professionals who are really good at what they do. Like you and I are really good at some of the technical components of our expertise. And because of that, we build a business around that. And what happens over time, very short time, sadly, is that it becomes built around you instead of beyond you. And so one of the things I'm always pushing it is how do you build an organization where you can grow out of where people and process beyond you become truly the business so that you're just not stuck in a high paying job. And so the whole concept of beyond your shadow is leaning into helping people build a business that's bigger than uh, herself or himself. 
So I haven't read your book, although I will, I'll accept your challenge. I'm a, a, a geek yeah. and uh, I love to read. And so I will check that out. And I, for one, will accept the free offer. So cool. we'll mail it to you. And there's two there. We'll get to that book and another one called False Prophets. So I would love it. It'd be great. awesome. And so uh, you have a framework you call the four P's that I think it's related to the, the term growing beyond your shadow. Yep. So what are the four P's? Can you walk us through uh, what they are? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny that like you've heard people hear like versions of this throughout, you know, kind of our modern business cycle. And Peter Drucker is probably framed the most famously with kind of uh, his version of people, right? I, I want to let everyone know I'm a people person on my team first above everything. And so with the right people sitting in the right spot, right, a good Jim Collins adage, then you can do a lot of things. So my first P is people. The next P, interestingly, is all about the process of what you do. If you want to be a real company, and I, what I mean by real is consistent and efficient and be able to deliver something regularly, then you got to have process for the good people uh, on your team. And then, and of course, if you don't actually do something of value where you are solving a value proposition where your product, either the service you do or the thing you give somebody is it valuable? It isn't solving a problem. Uh, it isn't the solution to someone's problem. The marketplace is going to cycle you out. And then the last P is really something that I've learned in my own journey. You know, it's not really about just the top line revenue you bring in. It's about what you keep. So if you're not profiting, then really at the end of the day, you're, you're going to lose the game of business and that journey by cycling out and running out of cash. So it's people, it's process, it's profit, and it's your product. So I'm a financial geek. I think, I don't know if you describe yourself as a financial geek, but you're, you're a, an attorney, you're a tax expert. Is that a fair? I don't want to oversell yeah, you. I'd say the analysis of the tax. Everyone should know that the business I built was to solve a problem I have. I would never hire me for either data analyst, controller, CFO, or bookkeeper position. There's great people on our team that do the, the actual good, honest, professional work that I it was built because of me, not in. So you and I know the importance of generating profits. And it seems yeah. to me... I assume that everybody recognizes how important that is, but based on my 28 years of experience in working with lots of individuals that have started up, ran, uh, sold, and other businesses having failed, yep. that it's not as obvious as you would seem at first glance. How is it that there are a lot of businesses out there and even some that are successful despite this flaw don't focus on profits and focus on other things such as revenue at the expense of looking at the bottom line or the profits. First off, does that, is that a fair characterization? It very much is a fair characterization. And it, it, it sadly doesn't surprise me because of some of the things I know. One, you know, I think most people who set out in to do something I'm going to give a little edginess right now to my answer. I don't think most people set out to run a business. I think they set out to do something, either create a product or they're like me, they're a clever marketer, or they just do something technical in nature. They never really think about the business. And so back to that service company example, you know, think about, you know, if it, a traditional accounting firm or even a financial advisory, you know, if growing it beyond you, you're starting to look at yourself as a widget in hours. And all of a sudden, 
getting caught up in running the business is different yeah. than providing what you do as a job. And so most people don't set out to think about the profit. Uh, they actually measure different indicators in the business, such as how much money is coming into the company. And so for me, you know, I would just always focus on gross revenue. And the second part of that answer is I was afraid of part of the business that I didn't know. And that, listen, I was a lawyer trained in corporateness and tax efficiency and all the things that go along with that part of my life. I still lacked. And now every day I have to work at financial stuff like EBITDA and profit margin and bottom line things that I would avoid for language purposes. I just didn't understand the category of finance. Once I realized it was the language of business and if I didn't care about the bottom line, why would I expect anyone else on the team to do it? It can't magically defend itself. Well, I started to really have a better relationship to the bottom line, like I already did to the top line in our business. So I'm, I'm reminded of the adage, at least um, I'm Italian. So I, I think it's an Italian joke, but it probably is used in other cultures too. But it was, you know, and actually in my family, we would use Vinny. I know your name is Vinny, but it yeah. was like, you know, oh, my uncle Vinny, he sold suits for a living and he lost money on every single suit, but he tried to make it up in volume. Yeah, that's so true. In the so, world that I live in, Chris, you know, direct to consumer, the yeah. digital world, the whole coming into today's environment, the whole idea was to spend a dollar, to get a dollar, to break even, to get someone buying behavior online. Well, now that we've shut the world down and we've normalized the behavior of a shopping cart digitally, the, some of the habits of how we run business digitally need to change in direct to consumer. It's no longer just about acquiring the customer at break even. You know, four out of five companies will run out of cash and close because they're they have they're trying to spend too much money to acquire the customer. Well, now we need to be a little bit more efficient of that. That's true if brick and mortar, every business spends more, too much. 42 cents of every dollar is spent acquiring the customer. And I think there's some strong reasons why. Um, and, and this idea that we try to do business with everybody, but also lack a little bit of the understanding of where our dollars are really spent. It's kind of this perfect storm of why people will focus on gross revenue. And if I could just add more volume, that will solve my problems. You know, I serve this God of gross revenue and I think that can solve all my problems. You know, in 2012, I won this marketer of the year award, big eight figure company. And as I was walking on stage, I leaned to my partner and said, wouldn't it be hilarious if this audience knew when we were half the size, we were more profitable. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. And that's not uncommon, right? So, so let me ask you this. You said a great statistic of, would you say 42% of a company spending is typically in client acquisition, right? Yeah. So how does that relate to the lifetime value of the client? How does that relationship work? Because if you spend 42 cents on a dollar, but you had a lifetime client with a recurring business, whether it was recurring revenue or some type of subscription or just a repeat customer, um, how does that factor into how much you should spend to acquire a customer? Is that something you guys look at? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love that question. So for you and I, right, we have longer in our businesses, you and I have longer shelf lives, right? Longer yes. lifetime values than the average person in industry. You know, in the accounting world, you keep a client five to seven years. We're like at the top 
of the food chain of keeping volume-based clients. But the reality is, one of the reasons I'm always worried about people looking at this idea of lifetime value is, you know, 95% of companies will never see a 10th year in business. And so average order value, reorder rate, and probably churn or breakage, how, how quickly you lose them, is some of the benchmarks that people should be measuring in the early days in order to establish lifetime value. But I agree with you, by the way, that 42 cents figure, businesses today are spending money on acquiring a customer. And they're also spending some of that money, that 42 cents of re-engaging a customer they already have to get them to rebuy. And so most businesses have a one-time transaction with with clients. They have to re-engage them. You know, you and I run businesses that have reoccurring clients each month, but the reality is um, vast majority do not. So what are some common mistakes business owners make? Because as we, I think, establish, a lot of people go into establishing a business, bringing on team members because they have a product or service that they believe solves a problem in the marketplace. And a lot of them are either unfamiliar or possibly even intimidated by the numbers part of running a business. Yeah. And so what are some common mistakes that you have found business owners make that lead to poor cash flow management? Because I'm asking this, you already made the valid point that a lot of businesses fail or encounter difficult periods because of a cash flow crunch. So what are some common mistakes business owners make? You know, it's no different than our home. You know, when we think about our personal finances, if you're running along the red line with the money in your bank account and your furnace breaks, all of a sudden you're like, things are bad. You got to get the furnace fixed and you might skip a mortgage payment or something else. Well, businesses run the same way. When you're super tight on cash, you make very short term decisions. And those short-term decisions may not be in the best interest of the company. Oh, yeah. And so that is probably everyone's biggest mistake in business is this tight cash every day, live another day attitude inside the company. And there's a couple things. It isn't like one problem for everybody. And that in, the, in my book, The CEO's Mindset, which again is yours for free, please get it. There are six real parts to a company and everyone has some little part of their company that's taking a hit. And what I think happens quite often is you're usually an expert in one of two areas. You're either like a the service or product person. You've got something you really are good at delivering or you're a sales slash marketer. You're really good at getting amplification or noise out to who would be your buyer. You, you usually miss out on some of the other components of running a business. And it's one of those areas where you don't have a maturing attitude. You know. 7%, that's the number of businesses actually do seven figures of annualized revenue, which means they only do a million dollars a year or above. So that means 93% of companies are under a million dollars a year in revenue. The wow. habits of somebody who's running a five and six figure business is different than the habits you have to start to establish going seven and eight figures and beyond. And what I think happens is people run businesses where they're doing every minimum base part in every area of their company. And as it matures, they have a really hard time of breaking out of the habit structure that got them there. And boy, if we could all work at that a little bit better, I think this churn rate or breakage rate of how companies 
flip over and break. They don't usually break for lack of value proposition. They, lay, they usually break for lack of good operation. So is it fair to say that there are times that you um, consult with a business owner in some way, shape or form where, where you diagnose that they're, they're good at their craft. You yeah. acknowledge that they have a pretty good team. Yep. You acknowledge that they're solving a problem or delivering value to the marketplace, that there's a market for their product or service, but that your diagnosis is, boy, if you don't get your financial house in order, if you don't change your financial habits, you're going to fail. So what happens is, people, I, I, this happened to me, which is why I get it. You, you, got, you, you need to separate the relationship of your business and you. So we have these great entities, these great like legal entities in America that allow us to flow through all of our tax liability to us personally. Yeah. And one of the, so small businesses have this benefit. Big businesses don't run like this at all. They have a layer for the business and then they have a layer for the owner. There's two levels of tax treatment that happen in a business. And I think the smaller the business, the more we commingle it as one thing. And we don't run the business. We just worry about whatever tax payment we pay at the end of the year. And I think that's actually what happens in business. We treat it as one little bank account that we pay out of. Now I'm all for, I'm a tax guy. I don't believe we should pay Caesar one more penny than he's due. And maybe as maximize as little as that penny as we possibly can. I'm a extremely believe in maximizing the code. And I think any good business leader should, but until you start realizing you get two bites at that apple, you almost don't treat the business as a thing. You treat yourself, you watch some of the agreements you say, where you say, I'm just getting ready for my end of the year tax. It's what a business leader is trained to think about the smaller the entity. And so I think we need to break out of that habit. And when you start looking at the business separate from you and you know me and Debbie have the end of the year of our tax return, you start to look at some of the maturity elements that go into operating the business and then deal with you on a personal nature. Very good. So if people are listening and you wanted to give them, uh, they're a business owner, let's say in the small end of the scale, you know, maybe five, 10, 20 team members, and um, they would like to improve what they're doing on the financial side of their business. What are some things you would suggest that they do to improve the financial management of their business? Two tips. And this is what changed everything for me. One is you actually, if you look at what accounting and finance does, in most cases coming into this business environment, because technology hadn't caught up yet, when I mean this business environment, I look at businesses in five seasons or five years as a season. Well, there's accounting and finances can be very historical. So you're getting data that's old. And so you're looking at something that might tell you you bled to death 45 days ago. So one thing I would do is get a more real time or a pretty immediate return on like your profit and loss statement. So for me, what that means is without technical terms is I want to know the more transactions I have in my business, I'd like to know real time, which parts are the leaky bucket. And then the second part, which is probably even a little bit more granular than that is this concept that I didn't understand called benchmarking. I, I need to know where I stand against myself today, yesterday, last month, last quarter, last oh, yeah. year, 
I also need to know where I stand against the industry that I'm in. I'm not alone. There's people who do what I do. And how am I measuring against that? How many times like people are like, I wonder if I'm like, if I'm profiting like against my competitors at a level that makes sense. Well, those two things, one, you know, I had this large health supplement company doing north of 40 million in revenue and we had razor thin margins. And I found out we were doing 8% in profit margin, but I should have been doing like 22%. And once I realized that I could benchmark myself against what I should be in the industry, I started focusing on the 14 points I was losing, not celebrating my razor thin 8% margin. And it changed everything in our business. No, that's great. That's great. You, um, do you think that, how do I say this? Do you think that business owners, you mentioned before, let me, I'm trying to put this together in my head, bear with me. You mentioned before about like, uh, having to pass through entities like LLCs and, 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 uh, families, business owners, they kind of commingle the thoughts of their, their personal and their business because the way the tax code is structured, it kind of lends itself to that a little bit. Sure, absolutely. Um, what we, I want to get your thoughts on this. What we advocate our clients have on the personal side is a net worth statement or a personal balance sheet. There's different terms for it. Sure. Vinny. Yep. Um, but it's another form of benchmarking, it seems to me, although I don't use that terminology. But basically what we want our clients to do is run on a regular basis, a net worth statement. We want you to list your assets and we want you to list your debts and your net worth is found by subtracting your debts, the total debts from your total assets. And the, to the extent you're trying to win with money um, and build wealth and make smart financial decisions, which is what we want to help our clients do. It's what sure. you want to help your clients do as well. Yep. Is You want to keep track of how you're doing in creating wealth. The tricky part for that small business owner is sorting out what goes on the net worth statement versus what goes on the business profit and loss statement. Because for a lot of individuals, especially at the small end of the small business market, for a lot of people, they view it as one and the same. Technically, it's not. Right. You know it. You and I know it's not. But in their minds, it sort of is. So I want to have a personal net worth statement. And I also then want to have a profit and loss to see how the business is doing. And you should then be able to have them, those two foundational documents work together hand in hand, because if the business increases in value, eventually that's going to make its way over to the net worth statement, right? So, you know, most people probably don't realize a big fact, you know, the top 1% of income earners of the category, the top 1%, we hear this language being passed around the, the, the invitation to be a top one percenter in income is quite low. As a matter of fact, to be in the top 3%, all you have to do is make a little bit north of $150,000 a year. And you have immediately worldwide been adding to a category. Here's a better stat. Of the top 1% of in our, let's just call our community, in order to be in the top 1%, you virtually have to be a business owner. Well, here's what's crazy. Almost everyone listening, this is just a fact. 85% of your net worth is in your business. So if we had more people focused on actually adding more profit, 
which would then correlate to more value in their business. They would substantially impact the largest asset they have, which is their company. Now, really, to me, it's actually quite simple now. Your business only owns one line on your personal net worth statement. It's whatever the value of it is. But if I want to massively impact my personal net worth statement, if I can, the mission I have personally and as a company is to double the profit margin of 10,000 businesses. Well, if we do that, we will have doubled the net worth of those same 10,000 people because oh, yeah. they actually have all of their asset value tied up in their business. That's exactly right. And it's very well said. Additionally, if the business prospers, and is creating revenue, income, however it's characterized for tax purposes, much of that money will end up on the personal wealth statement because then you could use that income, that revenue, not only to live a nice life, but to accumulate other line items on the asset side of the column, uh, mutual funds, 401ks, IRAs, college funds, real estate. Absolutely. And by the way, Chris, it's all in fairness, Chris, like, I believe in like running really maturely different, like, like there's a difference between getting your PL for your business, running and humming right. So you make good business decisions. I also think you need to make strong, good, appropriate tax elections so that you save as much of that cash as you possibly can. Twice a year, the most expensive hit to everyone's checkbook is that tax payment if you run a business. So we believe in really running those different sets of, you know, you got to clean that up so you pay as least amount of tax as possible. I get it. But you'll have to normalize your, your actual statements so that you always are working on the company too. It's not one or the other, it's both. Very good. So I enjoyed this discussion and routinely here on the Simply Financial podcast, you know, we have guests on experts just like you are yep. and you've given some great information but on a personal note you seem like a very financially responsible guy and run a great business and help people uh, what is something that you splurge on something that you spend money on that is uh, uh, a regular treat something you splurge I on? believe on I, I at my core I'm thankful to have certain gifts one of them is a gift of hospitality but at my core I believe in memories over stuff so if you were to watch me, I take lots of, well, I did until currently take lots <laughs> of trips with family. I, I will always try to group up family. Deb and I, my wife, Debbie, we, we spend money and I actually had, you know, I'm thankful she sees it. You know, after 25 years of marriage, she saw it sooner than that. We'll do things over stuff. So we live in a nice home. We have things, but if if left to where I'm going to spend in my category, you know, uh, the thousand dollars, it's going to be spent on doing something, not buying some stuff. And so for me, I splurge in my life. Numbers are I don't really have to make people feel worse about what I. But I spend a lot of money on travel, vacation, and doing things right. because. I learned that in my practice with people who are building for wealth, they wait for this day and then some things happen later where they don't get the time they thought. And so Deb and I deployed early in our relationship doing stuff, uh, even if it's a big line item in our budget. I love the experiences. And, you know, I have two children and I think about that a lot because my daughter's 20, my son's 14. Anytime I could spend with them at this stage of the game, experiencing things, whether it's simply a home cooked meal or travel or whatever case it is, you know, when we could experience things either as a foursome 
or maybe just me and my son, or maybe my sure. wife and I, along with our daughter, whatever we can do to create experiences, that is increasingly what I would say I want to splurge on. But that's different than the answer that I had when they were, you know, eight and two. I don't know if that's just age or because I've become wiser. I read a great book called Halftime by Bob Buford. And he talked about this two phases in life, your success phase and your significant phase. And Chris, I think that's true for you and I. We have, you know, I have all four teenagers, one in college, one about to be in college and uh, high schoolers. And, and I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. There's different stages. I, in my accumulation phase, it was success at many costs. And I can look at that and be honest and, and certain regrets about the way I would have done that. Yeah. But I'll be honest that like, like we really, at the end of the day, I can give you all kinds of stories about filling the bucket in the money category. But once you're beyond certain basic needs, everyone, the only way to satisfy using money is the way to do that. It, it was the famous J.D. Rockefeller quote, you know, what's enough money? He would say just a little bit more. And so you're always chasing that in success mode. Well, at some point, I think when the gray hair set in and the kids get a little older and you start looking at life through a certain different lens, you start looking at significance. And for me, I'm thankful to have found a category to invest in them and relationship and legacy and things like go do stuff over buy another car. Beautiful. Very well said. So thank you very much for spending some time with me today. Uh, at the outset, you had that offer. Um, can you yeah. just repeat it for maybe someone who um, missed it when we discussed it earlier Absolutely. on? So thanks for listening, everybody. And at fullyaccountable.com forward slash simply financial, you'll get access to our best selling books, along with some resources that we would recommend for you all free, no obligations, and take them. We'll mail out a nice package to you and it's all yours. I just encourage you to read it. And if you're somebody that lives in our digital world who actually work e-commerce and that type, give us a call. We would love to guide you. That's the type of client base, but everyone should take advantage of the resources and, and we hope to uh, help you along the way. And so we've set up an email during all this shutdown time. We care at fullyaccountable.com and we love to help you. And if it's not a right fit with us, we'll find you a good home. And we will, Vinny, we'll, we'll provide a link at our website because many of the listeners will be familiar with my website, elliotwealth.com. So if you're listening and you, you um, go to that site regularly, you could go there and it'll also, we'll have the link to get you to what Vinny just described. Thanks again, Vinny. I will be back with all of you very soon on the next episode of the Simply Financial Podcast. Thanks for listening today. The views expressed are not necessarily the opinion of SagePoint Financial Incorporated and should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned herein. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal invested. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. No strategy can assure a profit nor protect against loss. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon when coordinated with individual professional advice. Please note, the information being provided is strictly as a courtesy. When you link to any of the websites provided here, you are leaving this website. We make no representation as to the completeness or accuracy of the information provided at these websites, nor is the company liable for any direct or indirect technical or system issues or any consequences arising out of your access to your use of third-party technologies websites, information, 
and programs made available through this website. When you access one of these websites, you are leaving our website and assume total responsibility and risk for your use of the websites you are linking to. Securities and advisory services are offered through SagePoint Financial Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC, insurance services offered through Elliott Wealth Management, LLC, not affiliated with SagePoint Financial.